I think it was about uh, two or three years ago uh, that I was asked to do a presentation on the unthinkable. Most of us volunteer, and I know as a director for a missions program that our volunteers are our most precious, cherished uh, gifts that we feel the Lord has given us. And that means uh, a lot of responsibility with a capital R. And then when we look at the status of things as it occurs, the unthinkable is occurring today. I mean, and so that's really one of the things we're going to be talking about. And then as people of Christian faith, how do we look at the issues of Christian faith? And how does that impact? I'm just trying to make sure we're changing. and We are not. Let me see if I can. Remarkable when they work, isn't it? Spirit, I can tell you that. Thank you. You know, some people, when we think of security, I know it was after 9-11, I sat in the office and got maybe 20 calls from people who said, is it safe to go on the mission trips? And my question always was, is it safe to go anywhere. And then the question always arises, is security the absence of danger or is it the presence of the Lord? I think that's a question that we as Christians have to to answer. It's It's a question that brings about our understanding of the sovereignty of God. Where are we in that? Do we have a calling? I've always said it's about time that we started to live like the songs we sing. And that means that there is a commitment. But yet there's a risk. There's always a risk. And where does that end and and where does it begin? When I think of God's sovereignty, I don't think there's a lesson that I learned better than from the Old Testament 
about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, that was a real lesson to me. Because they said, our God is able to deliver us. They believed in the omnipotence of God. That nothing was too hard for him. You know, and then what else did they say? Exactly, but not so soon. He will deliver us. Those terms, he will deliver us. They believed that the love of God that acts on behalf of his beloved, that acts on the behalf of his beloved. And then they said, but if not. Okay? Well, what did that show? But if not, they believed in the sovereignty of God, that he acts on the basis of his own pleasure and goodwill. And they were fine with that. But if not, and then our God whom we serve. They not only believed certain things, they acted on them. And that they had done that for all of their lives. They not only believed on those things, but they acted on the things that they believed. How are we in that category? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would hide the speaker, that the words that are given would be the words of Jesus, that all else would be forgotten, but all that would be remembered are your words, your holy unction, your discernment, your wisdom, and may it be imparted to us for your glory that you may uh, find that we would be willing to be a blessing to you, no matter what the cost. And so, Lord, we thank you and praise you for this day and this opportunity, and we ask that you would be present with us, encouraging our hearts and exhorting us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So God's sovereignty is so important for us. And as we look at God's sovereignty, uh, in John, it says, John 10, 14th verse, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. You know, all of us have read the 23rd Psalm. And the 23rd Psalm begins what? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What part of that don't we understand? You know, it's, it's a very important issue for us to be in the center of God's will. When people, uh, when we're going to difficult places, and I've taken teams into Afghanistan for about 13 years, if somebody says, I, I don't know if I ought to go, I tell them to pray about it. If you feel called to go, 
By all means, go. If you don't feel called, don't go. I think that's an important issue and an important area in our lives that we that we should do that. And so as we look at the Word of God, in so many areas it's very clear that uh, in Hebrews 13.6 it says, So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? We just had a team come back from Lebanon. The stories from the Syrian refugees were more than heartbreaking. They were evidence of the evil that is present in our world beyond anything that we have seen recently. And absolutely and totally heartbreaking. Young children uh, decapitated because they would not accept the Lord. Parents telling the young children, look, when they question you and ask you, will you recant your Christian faith? Tell them no. Close your eyes and pray to Jesus. You will have pain for a moment, but then you will be with him for eternity. Picture yourselves in that in that position and speaking with your children. Absolutely unbelievable. So we're facing some unthinkable situations. And we know with with grace and dignity what the word of God is. And we also know a bit about human systems. Human plans. And uh you know, uh, we see in Proverbs that it says, The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory rests with the Lord. We, we need to understand in Psalm 21, 1, that it says, Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. And so we understand more than just the casual observer of the importance of these things. And as we go into Proverbs, it becomes clear that there is a way that seems right to man. But in the end, it leads to death. So human systems and human designs are a responsibility that we have. But ultimately, our goal is to be in the center of God's will and trusting him. But we are responsible because he's given us what? Stewardship over the volunteers. And we are to use his wisdom and his discernment during the process of preparation. Prevention and avoidance are the biggest assets that we can have. 
And that is going to be a bit of the primary focus. But we will get into some other uh, details as we move on. Security incidents would, would just boggle your mind. 468 workers were victims of deliberate violence in 2013, an increase in 66% over the 2012 numbers, which were 277, and shootings and kidnappings were the most prevalent types of deliberate violence. So when you think about shootings and kidnappings, it used to be, Unthinkable. But kidnappings are the ATM for many organizations at this point. And so it's very important for us to understand those things. Aid workers' kidnappings have quadrupled over the past decade. More aid workers have been kidnapped than any other form of attack. And that is an important issue. It brings that issue to light. It encourages us to be prudent, careful, and concerned. And that's really what our, what our heart is. Uh, you know, the interesting fact is that in this situation, 155 humanitarian workers were killed in 2013 more than double the number killed in 2012. But I think the important issue is three-quarters of all of these disastrous incidents happened in five settings, in five countries. Where do you think they were? Just five countries. We're talking about Afghanistan as the number one. We're talking about Syria we're talking about South Sudan, Pakistan, and Sudan. Those have been the main areas of concern. That does not mean that you're immune in other areas. Thirty countries have been involved in these kinds of incidents, but three-quarters of them occurred in those particular countries. And it's the long-running Taliban insurgency that shows no sign of weakening that remains the setting for most of the attacks. So uh, it's very important for us to, to sort of look at these issues. This is just an example of what happened in 2012. 2013 was greater in number, but you can see the large number from Afghanistan and uh, South Sudan and, uh, and the other countries. Let's just take a look at the incidences. Look at, look at the logarithmical rise in uh, attacks. The number of incidents has increased, and the number of victims has increased enormously, particularly as we get to 2013. So the question is, is this something we should disregard, or is this something we should be careful about? So if we look here, we can see the increase since at the far right-hand corner, as you look at it, the increase since 2000. So look at the percentages. Uh, aid workers kidnapped 
1,218% increase, higher than any of the other areas. The number of victims was 505% increase. So we're looking at large increases and, and large numbers. There are five particular phases of kidnapping. And it's very important that teams going into these areas are made aware that your team leader is experienced, knowledgeable, that your national partners are engaged if you're going into these areas particularly. But true everywhere. Let me explain that at one time it was totally a matter of the money game. If we can get money, then let's take kidnapping victims. And the interesting thing is that uh, as the time has gone on and we see the, the immense rise in evil, where kidnapping now means people entered into human trafficking. That disappeared. 700 uh, of the Nigerian women and children disappeared because they were sold off into the slave market. They were placed as uh, trophies for the uh, warriors of the time. They were sold into slavery. So it was a money game, but not a ransom game. And so the, the, the system has changed greatly. And so we're looking now at these five phases. The first phase in this process is reconnaissance. Years ago, we solidified our compounds. We took the flags down. And we took the name of the NGO off the front of the deck so that people would not sort of recognize all the targets. In doing so, we have forced to some extent our predators or our people taking part in, in this kind of activity to move to softer, what we call softer targets. We haven't done the same thing in our roadside transportation. It is a much more difficult area to deal with. So reconnaissance is what they're looking at. What does that mean? When do you leave? When do you return? How many cars? What do they look like? And all that kind of thing. They're also looking at the compound. Is, is that is it a guarded compound? Is it a compound that, that has a, a shrubbery around it and different things? Does it have cameras? How hard is it as a target? If it is a hard target and their interest is in working this group that you're with, they're going to be looking at roadside activity, and I'll explain that in a minute. After reconnaissance comes 
sort of the capture and transport. That's a very difficult time. It's difficult for one reason. If there is the absolute advantage of you making noise, attracting attention, and escaping, it's an ideal time to do it. It is also the worst time to do it. Why is that? Because that is when your combatants, the, the uh, uh, kidnappers, are most nervous. They're most anxious. They're most apt to be trigger happy. They are most likely to eliminate the leader, the person making the biggest noise, the person who's standing out in the group, the person who's giving them a problem. So many organizations say if you're in the midst of the capture and the transport of a hostage or kidnap situation, unless you are 100% sure that you can make it out, don't make a fuss. The odds still are on your favor of being released. So uh, that's, that is the situation with the capture and transport. And then one has to think of the holding time. And, and we'll go over some of the – the holding time is the time that you've been transported to an area – and at that time, uh, you may be restrained. You may have a hood over your head during the ride. Those kind of things because they don't want to let you know where we are going. And the other question is, one of the questions that you have to answer is, why did they kidnap you? That's a critical, critical question. Because if they want to make a political statement and they kidnapped you to kill you, you definitively need to make an escape or try, even if it fails. If they did it for just political reasons, and you know that that's the case, then you may be fine uh, sort of letting these things go. And, and holding steady and letting them understand your humanity. So we're going to speak a little bit about during this holding time as well. What do you do? How do you respond? And uh, so this is a, a very important area. And then the next is termination of captivity. One way or another, are you going to be uh, released? Are you going to be rescued? Are you going to have a ransom paid? Or how are you going to have that captivity end? And the other uh, is the sort of the recap, the post-incidents recap, which is necessary for all NGOs. Now, let me tell you, it is extremely difficult to get all the information on kidnapping. You'd think it would be easy. You'd think we'd be able to share the information well between NGOs. Not so. It is very difficult. Why is it difficult? 
First of all, it's difficult because some organizations have insurance for ransom and other things. What does that mean? That means that they put in the hands of their insurance company making the deal for the release. Do they want that out? Absolutely not. But what does it do? It, it definitively poisons the well. I mean, they know that if, if we take people, it's an encouragement. It's going to increase our coffers. It's going to be an, uh, an important thing for our finances. And that's how they're, they're, they're working. Let's just take a look at how to survive an abduction or hostage situation. And then I'd like to get into some of the areas that are important for us to consider sort of as an organization and how some of these things might work out. How to survive an abduction or a hostage situation. The first time we mentioned the attempt to thwart the abduction. That can be a very effective thing if it happens where a lot of other people are there and they are apt to help uh, you. As an individual, it, it may be more promising than as a group. Remember that most of these abductions and all are going to occur where? On the road. On the road. So what does that mean? It's a, they have the advantage. They have the advantage of surprise, and I will mention a number of others. So an attempt to thwart the abduction needs to be done with great wisdom and great discernment because it may cost the life of either the person being abducted or persons being abducted because, as I said, the abductors are very nervous, trigger-happy. They may act calm and understanding. That is not the case, I can assure you. The other thing is to regain your composure. I mean, your heartbeat has been uh, about 154, and, you know, you have, you have anxiety, and your mind is going all over the place, and you need to cool your jets a little bit. That's a lot easier said than done. But as you do that, it will allow you to be an asset to the whole process. You will not show anxiety in terms of crying and things like that, which does not profit your situation. Hysteria, all those kind of things. You may be... Uh, put into, uh, you know, uh, cable ties, and you maybe have something over your head and pushed into a, an area which is very uncomfortable and have to stay that way for a while, it takes a, a certain amount of concentration, mind over matter, so to speak, because now you are concentrating in your mind where they're taking you. How long does it take to get there? What kind of road is it? What kind of noises do you hear? And if you are very upset and, 
and so forth, you're not going to be able to take any observations that are so necessary. Observing the captives. Now, you might not be able to see them. But what language are they speaking, do you know? Does it sound as though they are calm and collected? Are they yelling at each other? Do they know what they seem to be doing? What are the surroundings that you, what are the smells that you smell? And how about yourself? Can you check yourself out and see, am I hurt? Am I all right? You know? Those kind of things, because you may have been thrown around, and you need to sort of take uh, account of what's going on. Those things are very important when information needs to get out and information can be uh, sent out about your captives. And as I mentioned before, try to ascertain at some point why you have been abducted. And as I said before, that's very important. Did they abduct you to to kill you? Did they abduct you to try and get some ransom? Did they abduct you for a political gain or reason? What's the purpose of their abduction? It will help govern the situation as, as you're there as a group or individually. And... The other thing that's so important is your attitude. I mean, you need to keep a survival attitude. If you know what I mean, be positive. Understand that most kidnapping victims survive. That is true. The odds are in your favor. So in the midst of this Thing, prepare yourself for a long captivity. Does anyone have an idea how long the average captivity is? It can be, the, believe it or not, most people in a kidnapping have about 100 days before they're, something's going to happen. They're going to be moved. They're going to be transported. They're going to be out on because of ransom. Something. So we're looking at a, a long time, though. It can be years. It could be years. But the question is, can you, can you become? Can you put the captor at ease? And you're kind of thinking, who cares about the captor? You know, my heart's and blood pressure's up and I don't have any of my medicines and, you know, you're panicking. Panicking. And and so how do you keep calm? You have to be cooperative within reason. Cooperative within reason. You don't make threats or you don't become violent. You don't attempt to escape unless the time is perfect. There are situations that arise that might make the time Absolutely perfect, which means your chances of escaping are about 100%. Otherwise, it's not worth the risk. The only other time you would try and escape, if your chances are not perfect, is what? If they're going to kill you. And I'll tell you some hints 
about whether they're going to kill you or not. If the captive remains human, and it's not to wait till the guy comes out and holds your neck. That's not the clue. It's a little late at that point. Uh, if the captive remains human, if the captive remains human, that means if you have pictures of your family, if you have an opportunity to show your captive the picture of the family, if you have an opportunity to talk to them, the more you show yourself as human, the more difficult it is for them to treat you inhumane. Unless you get, of course, ISAF. I don't think it makes a bit of difference uh, uh, in, that, in that environment. But uh, look human in the captive's eyes. It's harder in most cases to kill, rape, and otherwise harm a captive that does not grovel before them, that does not beg, that has not become hysterical. Try not even to cry. Do not challenge your abductor. This all is part of Humanity, your human, your family, your loved ones, talking about those things. Say, I got a family at home. You know, they're thinking, they're starting to say, hey, this is a, this is a real person here. And that makes it much more difficult. Now, as we look, that's part of keeping your dignity. But the other part is here the rapport with your abductors to build some kind of, and we're not talking about, you know, totally understanding and having empathy with them and, and all that kind of thing. Build some sort of bond with your captor. Appear uh, sort of to be non-threatening in your, in your environment with them. And don't attempt to convince them that their delusions are unfounded. When they come on and tell you these things, don't say, well, I got a revelation for you. You know, that is not what they're going to be interested in. But now is the, is the time to sort of avoid insulting your abductor or talking about uh, you know, politically or, or sensitive issues. Just stay away from those kind of situations. That, that is, a, is a real problem. And that means just like religion and politics, terrorists or hostage takers that are politically motivated don't want to hear your sermon about politics or anything else. And so you, again, have destroyed an opportunity to develop that humanity, that relationship. So at, at this point, uh, you want to be a good listener. Now, that Dorothy told me, Dorothy, my wife, that you're going to have trouble with this. <laughs> I don't know why she said that, but she said, you're going to have trouble with this one. So be a good listener. Listener, uh, 
all the information that you can get from them in terms of their communication with you, if you have the opportunity, is good. It, it, sort, it may reveal some of their schedule. It may reveal the purpose of your kidnapping. It may give you an understanding of, you know, where they're going from here. It may give you a premonition or even an indication that they're going to move you. There's a whole lot of things that you can do. And, and being a good listener is, is important, but you can also express your humanity when they talk about family, when they talk about loved ones or, or that kind of thing. So that's an important issue for us all the time. And then we want to try and communicate with them in, in that way because if you're held with other captives, you want to try and talk as much or as safely as you can with other captives. Communicate. You may have to make covert signals. You may have to have a place to pass communications. You may have to have a code or something between you. But whatever you can do to communicate with other captives that are held with you, it is to your benefit. As long as you're not agitating and causing a problems with guards and they realize this is, you know, you, you need to do it with good uh, coverage, so to speak. And uh, the other thing is keep track of time and try to discern patterns that are going on while you're a captive. Now, you say, that's easier said than done. Or you might think, well, that's a piece of cake. Well, you may be in a totally dark room. There may be no windows. They may not turn the lights on. How are you going to know day from night? How are you going to know these different kinds of things? Well, you really have to pay attention. What are the smells? When do guards come and go? What is the traffic like outside? How do you, you know, you're now trying to put all this together. Your mind is being active in trying to discern various things in spite of the dullness and the, and the environment that you're in. And, and that's, that's very important. So those different awareness of, of what's going on is a real sensitivity, detecting patterns of activity and, and, and those kind of things. So you want to stay mentally active, and that's one of the ways that you're going to do it. But there are also other ways. Think about what you'll do when you get back home. In your mind, think about conversations in your head with friends and loved ones. Uh, recite Bible verses, sing songs to yourself even. Challenge your mind regarding escape. Keep occupied and mentally sharp because all these things tend to dull your senses and make you less human, less able to cope with your environment. So mentally active is very good. Physically active is extremely important. 
Usually, if your stay is long, they won't keep you tied in a chair 24-7. That could be possible. But even if you're in the chair, you can do isotonic exercises. You can start thinking about those kind of things because why? If you lose your strength, if and, and use it or lose it is one of the deals, isn't it? You will not be ready to escape if you have the opportunity. So you need to keep active. It's important physically. It's important mentally as well so that you get the uh, physical and mental exercise that's necessary. And it's and in, it's uh, it's important for really your good spirits. And then spiritually, keep your mind active, so that your praise and worship time is something that's still important, and that you're really on the right track. Your strength will come from the Lord. So that is is really so important from the standpoint. If you're settled in for a long captivity, gradually ask for small accommodations. And this means that you've been there uh, quite a while. And what what might be a small accommodation? Can I have a, another blanket? What, what does that show? Your humanity, right. You're, you're trying to, to show them, hey, you know, I, this is, or would it be possible for me to have a paper, a newspaper, or see what's going on, or, you know what I mean? Any of those small requests, keep those spaced far apart. Don't be asking every day, this is my, I want to have this, I want to have that, I, you know, I need this, and when is my tea going to be served? You know, don't, that, that, that's not going to go far. So, but, but the little requests in between are, are very, very important. And uh, so we talked a, a little bit, and, it, and it's mentioning here, you know, as we talked about mental preparedness, spiritual preparedness, physical preparedness, stress takes its toll. If you're under a short burst of stress, will your performance increase or decrease? It will increase. You will do better. You will, you will be able to, to, to perform to a higher level, and you'll accomplish more. What does chronic stress do? It does the opposite. It is a killer. It is a killer. As if stress increases, you have physical, mental uh, things. Your symptoms may be even physical. They may be emotional. They may be behavioral. All these kinds of things, the constant stress makes your endogenous catecholamines be depleted, and you are in no fight-and-flight position. You are depleted in every way. Your thought patterns are not right. Your spiritual development is not right. Physiologically, psychologically, the stress is, is too great. So this is what we're trying to do. Avoid the effects 
of the constant stress by mental activity, physical activity, making uh, a, a job out of the different areas that you're that you're in. And the other thing that is important totally is blend in. Now, what do I mean by blend in? Don't be a standout, meaning a troublemaker, constantly requesting things, yelling, screaming, being obstructive, showing a violent temper, saying that you're, you're, you'll be sorry for this, you know, those kind of things, it will not go. It will not go. And when the going gets tough, if you have been a standout, you will be the first to go. And they might do it just to tell the rest of the team, don't fool with the Falcon. You're out of here. You know, we're not going to put up with that. You want to act that way? You're gone. Now, whether they take you out in the desert and leave you there or whether you are killed or whatever it is, that is not a good place to be. So blend in. Watch out for warning signs. Remember we talked about a few of those things? If your captives decide to kill you, you need to know as soon as possible. You need to be able to discern that so that you can plan to escape. So how would you know? Well, they may stop feeding you. They may start treating you harshly, dehumanizing you. They may seem desperate, or they may seem frightened. Other hostages are being released, but... They do not intend to release you. There are these kind of things that are happening. You're watching, you're understanding. If they suddenly stop hiding their identities after wearing masks, etc., it's a very strong warning sign. Seek to escape as soon as as possible. They are not now concerned that you are going to be able to report who they are. Those kind of hallmarks are extremely important in discerning what's the warning? What's going on here? What's happening? Those are things we need to know. Try to escape only if the time is right unless you know that they're definitely planning to kill you. Then you have to go for the gusto. Look for the best opportunity and go for it. So as we, as we look at this, sometimes it's safest just to wait and be freed or rescued. Uh, but if the perfect solution, if the perfect opportunity is there, then... Take advantage of the opportunity. Someone leaves the door open and it's the back door and there's no guards around. 
you know, some strange thing that, that, that happens. Um, then you can, can move on it. Stay out of the way if a rescue attempt is made. Now, people die, captives die, in rescue attempts. Why is that? Well, they, they don't know first what to do. And secondly, they think that the rescuers are completely in control. The rescuers may not be able to tell you from the people that are they're, they're trying. It might be at night. You make a quick move to do something. They think you're going for a gun. You're, you're dead. They're, they're coming into a strange environment. They're under stress as well, the rescuers. They may say to you, lay down on the floor. Put your hands behind your back, whatever. What do you do? Lay down on the floor. Exactly. Put your hands behind your back. You know why? They don't know for sure who are the captors and who are the captives. They haven't sorted it out yet. And they want everybody on the floor and tied up until they can sort this thing out. They may, so you're all of a sudden, you're thinking, hey, I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to run. And the next thing you know, you're running. They think you're trying to get away. The best thing you can do before the the rescue gets into your intimate area is lay on the floor and get out of the way of gunfire. Because that is why many people are lost. And be very cooperative with the rescue team. Whatever they tell you to do, put your hands behind your head, lay on the floor, put your head, put your hands behind your back. They may ask you to do some things that you can't even believe. What, what on earth are they doing? I thought these were people to rescue me. You know, but they're trying to discern the situation. They're trying to, um, Determine who their friends are, who the foes are, who the captives are. And uh, so don't attempt to escape them in the midst of a rescue. Just be very, very cooperative and, and, and hit the ground. And then, as I said, follow the rescuer's instructions carefully. Do not try and teach them or stand up and this is, you know, we're, this is, you know, forget it. That will come later. The time now is to be totally cooperative and, and understanding. We know what happened in Nigeria with uh, Boko Haram and, and how women and children were kidnapped. I think the figures now are about 700. Completely disappeared. Now, they've never done that with aid workers. That doesn't mean they wouldn't do that. With, with aid workers. That's a tough area. And for all intents and purposes, no matter what we've done, I, I don't think that we're going to see them back. But I want to talk about organizational responsibility because you are making a decision. You're going to go with a particular team. You're called to do Syrian refugee work or whatever the sense is. When a kidnapping occurs, and it's sometimes very difficult to get accurate information about a kidnapping, 
So certain protocols have to be established and everything. But how would you like to be a member of the family who has not been notified and called and contacted and informed from an organization and receive a call about ransom? That's your first notice. Hello. You know, that is not a pleasant notice. And so the, 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 uh, the organization has specific responsibilities as it pertains to the people that are involved. And that we turn two areas. First, being proactive in what we do to avoid the problem. And then secondly, if the problem occurs, what do we do? We're not, we haven't been kidnapped, but we have a responsibility and, and it, and, and what, and it might be terrorism. It might be political action in a, in an area that requires us to get out of the country. So what are the proactive steps? What, what do we know? We need to know the areas that need to be covered in our, in our protection. Where are we at risk in this particular trip? What, what is going to be the problem? Well, so if we know what areas are involved, we can do what we call a risk assessment. What are the chances that that's going to happen? And if it does happen, is it going to be high impact or is it going to be low impact? You know, the chances are, what, what are the chances that someone could fall out of a vehicle? And is it a high-impact thing or low end? No. You know, it's high-impact for the one that hit the ground. Huh? But for the, for the rest, it's, it's not a high uh, use of resources. It's not a long-term kind of thing. So we're looking at travel as a key area. In fact, travel is taking higher and higher a precedent. We always knew missionaries are at risk. And one of the areas they're highly at risk is what? On the road, in their travel. I mean, it's not safe on the roads. We try not to drive at night. And many areas that we're going to have roadblocks, have, you know, areas where vehicles are inspected. People leave vehicles in the middle of the road with the lights off at night, you know, because it broke down or... They park it there or whatever. I mean, it's, it's hazardous on the roads at night. So basically, it's a good plan. Don't don't drive at night in in countries. It's it's very risky. Add to that the travel road attacks, kidnappings. The soft area for the kidnapping is what the road, the travel. So when we were in Afghanistan. We wanted to get the scoop from the underground. What's happening? What are you hearing? We had two Afghan freedom fighters that were working with us, and they knew the underground. They knew when we didn't go on Chicken Street because there was a suicide bomber rumored to be going in the area and so forth. They knew more than our help from the military that we got. The underground was fantastic, really. And they they cared 
because they knew the job we were doing, that we would what? Be safe. We had established a relationship with the underground that knew we were taking care of their people, that they wanted us safe, and that they were willing to help us. Insurgency cannot succeed where the people do not want it to. So we need to win the peace, not the war. Do you see the difference? And this is what we're facing in Afghanistan and so many other areas. Well, travel is a big deal. Why is travel a big deal? Travel is a big deal because it can accomplish with light weaponry and does not require complex planning. So light weapons, lack of complex planning, and without a great deal of manpower. That's their advantage. So what do they do? You go out, all of a sudden a cyclist falls in front of your vehicle. You stop. You've been had. A parked car in front of the road blocking your way. You're in trouble. So what we did is what we call the bleed and follow. We had a, a uh, vehicle go out ahead of us, about 10, 15 minutes ahead of us, and they would be the scout vehicle. They didn't have anybody there. We don't anymore, of course, use vehicles with our names on them. NGOs are just, if you have your name on the vehicle, you're saying, take us. And we don't use, like, uh, Land Rovers or things like that. Why, what does that say? They, they got money. They're Amer- we go in common cars. As my son said, who was in Afghanistan, he said, when you guys go... You look like some of the IED cars that we see around. <laughs> so uh, the, the deal is that we want to blend in to the community. And so we send out a vehicle a bit ahead of us. If they note a problem, they radio to the second vehicle, get out of here, or whatever the case may be. So that that is one thing. We call it you know, bleed and follow. So they're, they're there as sort of a scout vehicle. What's the other thing? We don't go at the same time every day. You know, some days we go at 8 o'clock. Some days we go 7. Some days we go 9. Some day part of the team goes out and turns left. Some day part of the team goes out and turns right. They don't know which way we're going. When we come back, Never at the same time. We may come back at 2 in the afternoon. We may come back at 1. We may come back at 4. So people watching cannot establish a pattern. Here's what they do. Here's when they go. Here's when they come back. Here's what they're doing. That's very important. So uh, in that in that situation, we want to uh, see... What, what is going to happen? Now, what can they garnish? What can the, the, these people garnish? They can garnish vehicles, looted aid materials, cash, 
hostages, media attention, political leverage. Even, and we didn't even include ransom. That could be included in money, I guess. But that's what they get. That's a pretty big haul for light arms and that activity. So travel is a, is a major risk. Lodging has been solidified, I said, you know, in terms of where people uh, are lodging and the compounds, and they've been tightened up, and they're sort of much better in terms of target risk. There are always health risks on any team, illnesses, accidents, cardiovascular disease problems, heart attacks. We've, you know, seen them all. And they're, they're very important. How do we deal with those? Do we bring a medical kit with the team? Do we, how do we special medications? Because many places we go, you're not taking someone to a cardiac care unit. They're not, they're not in the country. How do we do with an HIV stick? Do you bring an HIV chemoprophylaxis kit with your team? I mean, teams are going out, they're not prepared. And so when things happen, it's not good. It's not good. And then having the proper insurance, even repatriation of remains and, you know, accident, health insurance, all those kind of things. Every team member needs to have that. And many of the good insurances today also have political uh, evacuation they have evacuation for uh, martial law. They have evacuation for uh, terrorists, terrorist attacks, and so forth. There are certain areas where they will limit that. They'll say, look, in Afghanistan, all bets are off. You know, we can't, we can't go everywhere, but if you can get yourself to Kabul, we'll try and get you out, you know. So they're not going to go to, uh, you know, all spots and try and be everything to everybody. It's a, it's a difficult problem. But it is important for all team members to have that insurance. It's part of your responsibility. And then, of course, hostage-taking, kidnapping. Some organizations have insurance, as I mentioned, to help them. And, and, and that person with their insurance is their advisor in some of these things. So, how does the insurance read, and, and is terrorism included, and does the organization have a security management plan? You know, what, what do you do? As you are well aware, uh, if you ha don't have a crisis management plan with your organization, if something happens, you could be out of business because you have no idea how much that takes. And you probably don't have someone in your organization that is that experienced governmentally and has the experiences with hostage-taking and, and the other issues for negotiation. You need to have a plan to bring someone in to the organization who can lend that expertise. You have to have some control of information going out because you don't want everyone on your committee to start talking to the newspaper before family are notified or information that shouldn't be out there. So there has to be control of information sources in your organization. There has to be a set plan 
the whole organization will shut down if you do not have a crisis management plan. And how? who's responsible? Who's on the team? What kind of advisors do you have? How do you control information? If you can't do that, your whole organization is shut down with a long-term panic and a long-term plan, and it takes, uh, you know, you may have a number of locations. You may have a lot of things. It's a very serious thing. So, first of all, you want to gain some information, and, uh, and it is important to look at the State Department. The State Department will give you some information before you go. Uh, you, we, you should request the regional security officer at the embassy to which you are traveling. Get his name and the overseas phone number. That person, the security regional officer, will have information specific to your area and the latest information because that is important and that's what you want to know. If you go on the website, you may see, well, this is a warning or this is a restriction, but it could have been done months ago. But what's actually happening now, now that you're going in two weeks or three weeks? So the other thing is I'm sure most of your teams, or definitely should, be entered in that smart traveler program. The Smart Traveler program is critical. It gives the name, the passport, where your team is going to be located, that they're going to be in that country. It tells the embassy, hey, we're out here, and we're going to be in the area. Now, if something happens, it's not like, hello? They know that your team is there and that you may need some, some help, some assistance, and so forth. So it... You'll see travel alerts on the on the website, and the travel alerts are issued to uh, disseminate information about short-term conditions. But travel warnings are to assist us as American citizens where we're going, and and uh, to help us in those areas. And the dynamic element of change in areas where we're at depends on our national partners relating to us and giving us really key information. Can they tell us? And, and many of your national partners will tell you, I don't think you ought to go this year. Pull the plug. We cannot guarantee any kind of success. We don't want to see, you know, things are getting very rough here. It's immediately before the election. We're seeing more problems, whatever it might be. But your national partners are your eyes and ears. And the closer you get to point X, your departure time or whatever, the better they are at predicting what's going to happen. The farther out they are, the more difficult it is for them to predict what's going to happen and how dangerous the situation is. So it's, it's very important to use your eyes and ears in a very uh, important way. There is the Overseas Security Advisory Council. I don't know if you're aware of that, but it is more or less a commercial thing. It is, uh, I consider it the PDR. tells you everything that's wrong in the area, but it gives you a broad scope of critical information. 
You can go online. You can join the Overseas Security Advisory Council. It's a Bureau of Diplomatic Security. Very important and very helpful from the U.S. Department of State. Red 24 is really the, their, their job is looking at tough areas and seeing how they can get you out if a, if a situation arises. So we have Red 24 on call for us. And we get a lot of our critical information from Red 24. An excellent way to, to do that. We talked about the regional security officer, national partners, but those other two that are added there are very, very important for us. The crisis management team should be very specific to, to working in hostage situations, in war, in natural disasters, in governmental action or coups, in terrorist activity, in kidnapping, in criminal actions that occur when against your team when they're sort of in travel or at location, a situation where multiple deaths on your team occur. It could be motor vehicle. It could be uh, an attack or events that create negative public attention. Basically, your crisis management team needs to step in and step up. And that basically means they're taking, at at the base, finding out what's going on, getting added information to the team leader, uh, sort of activating their crisis management team. And that whole readout of who's on the team, how it's activated, that these are the things that they're going to be activated for, will be a tremendous help to your organization. It will stop your organization from being paralyzed. Because otherwise, when these things hit and they're long-term and they demand a lot of resources and a lot of time, you, you need to have the right people on that group And you need to be able to carry on your other activities. And you need to know who's getting that information out, remember, that I that I uh, mentioned. So crisis management, it only takes one critical incidence to ruin the reputation of your organization. You know, no matter how long it's been, it, it just a single event can pop the balloon. And so you need to be very, very prepared. It does not ensure anything, but it's trained leadership. It's that crisis management plan. It's the risk assessment. How risky are the things we're dealing with? What's a contingency plan if if that doesn't work out? What's a tactical on-site assessment? In other words, how are we working right on the ground? How does all that come together? And those kind of things make it very, very important that there's that chain of command and and uh, control of information. And so I think it's very important as we look at things, just not uh, kidnapping and, and hostage taking and terrorism, 
But how do we respond when there's riots and civil uprisings? How do we respond when we're on the ground with critical decisions? When there's been a suicide bomber and people are running down the street at you with someone who's been injured? Is it friend or foe? Is it how do we respond? Those kind of things team leaders need to be challenged with, need to sort of understand. And I know it's getting late. We're off the gun just a little bit. But do you have any questions that I can answer for you uh, about, yes? Well, we're all too much in the middle of this situation with <coughs> two cartels that have just gone to war right over the top of our hospital. Um, and as leaders, we're having to make decisions about personnel and evacuating and, where, you know, the balance between, you know, we are absolutely to trust God and we are not to test God. And that is a really tricky balance. Um, so, it, you know, I mean, I'm just open to any help, you know, of where do you, where do you make that balance? Uh, it's, very, it's very, very difficult. You're talking about something, too, that we find in disaster relief or in uh, humanitarian crisis. If we set up our sort of hospital on one side or our clinic on one side, so it looks like we're catering totally to that group, the other side will be totally uh, adversarial. And so, you know, from a, from a standpoint of understanding and wisdom and pre-planning, you can do that to some extent where you're going to be being completely neutral, treating people from both sides caring about them, if you can change that environment so that you're not put in the middle but are neutral in your humanitarian effort and your care, that is a, the ideal situation. But, again, it depends on the kind of environment that we can generate, the kind of interest support from the community who initially is with what you're doing. You're in a very difficult situation. We need to be in prayer for you. What's your name? My name is Macy, and we're Mexico Medical Mission. Yes. Well, let's be in prayer. Let's put that down, that that we'll be in prayer for Macy and and Medical Missions, because they they have a difficult decision. They already have a sort of a hospital developed. They're in the midst of, you know, really warfare on both sides with cartels and and only the Lord can give you the provision and the wisdom. So we'll pray about that for you. Is there anything else? Okay.